You're listening to an all new episode of Self Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. On this week's episode, we're sitting down with Jamie Nash. Jamie has been a working screenwriter for more than a decade. He's written films for Nickelodeon, Lionsgate, and Haxan Films, among others. Primarily, he's a genre writer for horror and family. It's a weird combo. He knows, but he somehow makes it work. His new book, Save the Cat, Writes for TV, is now available. He's with us on this episode to talk about how he broke into screenwriting, even though he was actually a computer programmer by trade, and how you can use the storytelling advice in the Save the Cat book series to help you create better stories for your business. Here are the self-made strategies of Jamie Nash. That's what happens when you interview someone that's in production, and then you tell them they're going to be on camera. They uh, they they mm-hmm. love to make sure the lighting's good. I, I did like the film noir vibe, though. It was like very much like a writer but, but, in his cave. That's that's what my students get because I'm too lazy to move the camera. So it's usually like me in shadow. It looks like looks like I'm on a 60-minute interview, you know, and I don't want to be seen or something. Yeah, like you're the um, FBI informant that's like blacked out yes, with a bright camera yes, in the back. I, yeah, bright light in the background. Yeah. I'm constantly giving them that because I'm just too lazy to adjust. I'm like, I, I show up like two <laughs> seconds before class and then I'm like, ah, whatever. That's awesome. That's cool. Where That'd are you fun. teaching now? Uh, I teach right now. I'm teaching at Towson, uh, okay. Towson University in Maryland. Teaching um, screenwriting. Normally I teach, yeah, teaching screenwriting. Normally I teach, I teach a couple courses over the course of the year. Um, sometimes at MICA, which is the Maryland Institute College of the Arts in Maryland, uh, in their film department. They, they're also, it's Johns Hopkins, Micah, so it's a lot of Johns Hopkins students. Pretty much it. I haven't been teaching too much with COVID because schools have really scaled back their um, core cla- to their core classes. Yeah, right. So it's all good. Um, yeah, same same funny. here. I teach at Temple and and uh, at Temple University here in Philly. And um, same thing. Next semester is like a total crapshoot because they're just basically like paring everything down. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, last year I was already signed up and I taught more classes last year, which was good because there wasn't a lot of screenwriting going on last year. Right. Um, and I, I taught three classes last semester, which is more than I'd ever done. And it was too much, to be honest, for me because I like, you know, I'm writing and stuff. Um, but it went from three to nothing because um, last year they were already on the schedule. They were already booked. And they the last thing they wanted to do was take classes away from the few people that wanted to come back during COVID times. Right. Um and but then this semester, it's like a lot of people are coming back, but they're just out of money. They're just like, ah, oh, we have to scale back, you know, for a semester. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sure it'll return the next year. Everything will be game on again the next year. Some of the classes I teach, students really need. Uh, it's part of while it might be part of their not be part of their core curriculum. I mean, filmmakers want to take the various screenwriting courses and stuff right. like that. So they, they can't like totally deny them. They, they can do it for a semester, but they can't do it for like two years or something <laughs> like that. So um, they'll start to riot. Students, yeah, there'll be no electives. There'll be no imagination right, exactly. to their uh, curriculum. Right, right. So I'm sure it'll come back. But yeah, they just they just need to take a take a pause for a semester. Yeah. Are you doing a lot of active screenwriting right now? I, I'm always actively writing much different things I, I usually six scripts a year generally wow. speaking wow. so um which which means i'm always doing something uh 
right now, for whatever reason, I, well, I know what reason, because COVID, during COVID, there was little sales going on. It was So they, it was hard to take things out. I mean, you could take things out that people would read them for meetings and stuff, but it, to actually sell something, nothing was going on. So this year I've jumped back into that. However, now there's a glut of material out there. And I'm not sure that people are still buying. You know, still it's a little questionable whether people want to buy. They're still a little slow. Uh, so I'm doing a lot of selling last year, what I did last year, this year. So wow, um, wow. That which is weird because then when I write new stuff, I'm like, I have a backlog. I, I myself have a backlog of all last year's stuff. So I've I've almost been trying to pace myself a little bit this year and write. I've been working more on books. Um, I've been like, well. I'm spreading, I'm broadening my portfolio, I'd say, uh, this year. So um, you're diversifying. I'm diversifying. Diversify. I'm diversifying. Like I'm trying to mix in like a TV pilot. Maybe I'll nice. do an animated TV pilot. Maybe I'll do a movie. Um, um, because there is really like my feature film sales, there's a backlog of my stuff. And it's like my agents are like, don't send me another thing. We haven't even sent this one. <laughs> and I don't, yeah. And, and I, I think, I think also they're like, we, we probably aren't going to be able to sell this. And I don't want you to just go out with like five things in a row that don't sell. Right. Um, of course. Right, so, right. Um, you know, they try to be nice about it, but they're like, right now, I don't think unless you really have attachments or something, nothing sells. So a right. lot of my stuff, when I say I'm trying to sell it, that's what I'm trying to do. It's, it's just going from one A-list actor to another and they read it and they're like, pass past you know or, <laughs> or i have another project that's going from one a-list director to another and uh you know we're just trying to get some some attachments that way before we actually present it to the buyers awesome so, yep that's what so I'm that's a, that's a little behind the scenes into what goes on into film and tv show production in general right in pre-production you're shopping oh, these yeah. things around and hopefully getting some support and if you have people that are signed on like a big name director or actor like you said more likelihood that people will be willing to invest more more so now than for, than ever um so that's that's where the big sales like the that's one of the dirty secrets unless you're like m night Shyamalan when he used to sell <laughs> scripts for a million dollars one of the dirty secrets is most of the scripts that have big money behind them have big attachments so it's like yes jamie nash might get it i wish i got a million dollars but it's really because leonardo dicaprio is going to star in it right it's, of course it's, yeah, we'll give Jamie Nash a million dollars to get a Leonardo DiCaprio project. Um, but it's not so much on the strength of my script all the time. Sometimes it is, but a right. lot of times it isn't. Right. A lot of times it's his attachments. Well, so I, I do want to come back to how you generate so many ideas so consistently. Sure. And we'll come back to that in a second. But first and foremost, one of the most interesting things that uh, I found when I was kind of researching and preparing for this podcast episode was you were not at all a filmmaker. You were a film enthusiast, of course, while you were in, I guess it was undergrad, you were in, in computer software engineering, computer yeah. software, computer science, yeah, com basically, computer right? Computer science was my degree, but I was a, I was a programmer essentially for many years. That's yeah. amazing. And so you, you graduate, you become a programmer, but you mm -hmm. continue to write the whole time. And now yeah. what, what yeah. drove you? What, how did you maintain sort of that, you know, constant writing schedule while you're, programming yeah. at the same time yeah so i mean it's kind of a weird question well and i love programming even to this day sometimes i'm i itch to get back into it mm -hmm. there's a lot of the same dopamine 
hit that I get from writing, I get from programming. You know, the, the, you build something every day and then it does something and you can see it and you're like, wow, okay, this is a thing. Um, but when I, when I went to college, I wanted to go to film school, but I am not one of those people that was ready to live a life that was filled with risk and might not pay off. Um, so this is something I express to my students. I'm like, I'm like, look, if you're <laughs> part of your plan <laughs> to be a creative has to incorporate those years of breaking in, right? Or otherwise you're doomed to fail. If you don't come up with a plan that you can live, you're not giving yourself the best chance to break in. So for me, just the type of personality I was, I looked at film school and honestly, I, I took, I was a film major up until my last year of college. I was wow. declared a film major, but I was only declared a film major so I could take the film class. I had no intention of graduating wow. with the film major because they, they had like, um, art history and things like that, that I wasn't as interested, you know, painting dance, you know, I wasn't going to take those, but I took all the film classes. Um, I had a teacher one of the first days of class. He said, he said, you know, and this was in the nineties. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, I'm not sure what anybody talking to the whole class, what any of you get out of film school, you're probably better off taking that. It wasn't much money back then, $20,000 or something and making a feature film. Um, that's probably better for your career. Um, and I think that, not that that struck me, but I had already sort of thought that I was like, well, what is this? Like none of my, none of the people I love got, you know, there's no, you know, food chain to it. There's no, mm -hmm. um, entry level position that then you work your way up <laughs> to become a Steven Spielberg, right? You know, you don't, you don't start out in the mail room and then become Steven Spielberg. It right. just doesn't happen. Right. And I wasn't interested in the other pieces of the puzzle. Like I didn't want to be an executive or something or an agent. I had no interest in that or a lawyer. I either wanted to be Steven Spielberg or nothing. So, um, well, maybe somewhere in the middle, like a screenwriter, <laughs> right, um, right. but I, I either wanted to be the cre creative or nothing. So, so yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I chose another thing that I really like to do, uh, computers, computer science, computer programming, by the way, I wasn't a very good student. So at the time, I think people might have looked at me and been like, you're going to be in this math-based thing? I, I was, I was a C-plus C student. I wasn't a very good student. I, I was kind of the kid that sat in the back of the room and dreamed about stories and projects wow. and stuff like that. Um, I was always really good at writing. That's where I excelled. Um, but yeah, I no, but I, I did, for some reason, enjoy computer science. And I was, I was pretty good at it, despite the fact that... Um, I struggled in calculus and those kind of things you had to take in computers. So I, I took computers. Um, and then at night, I, you know, I was always thinking about making my own movie um, ever since college. A lot of it was just me making my own movie. It wasn't necessarily having a career in it. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to go and be like Kevin Smith and make clerks or something. Or mm -hmm. I just wanted to make a short film. Um, and uh, I found that writing was the easiest thing to do alone without a big group you know it was free essentially and then i have to say that the internet is what turned it around um well the internet was around when i was in college which again was the early 90s it was only for people like me it was computer science geeks you know we had it was all command line stuff ftp and you know <laughs> stuff and 
these weird, all, all kinds of weird ways, mosaic. Um, and uh, but when in the in the late nineties, um, the mid to late nineties, that's when I was able to like start reaching out and seeing how to actually screenwrite from Maryland. I was like, oh, okay, now I can connect to these people in LA and they started to make message boards and things like that. I could swap screenplays. Um, I could do all that stuff. So the internet was a huge driver for me. If the internet hadn't come along, like if I had been born 10 years earlier, I'm not sure that I ever would have been a screenwriter. Right. Um, right. Because that's how I found my people. That's how I found my knowledge. It wasn't in college, not in Maryland, at least it was in, <laughs> uh, it was through the net. And, and again, it was that early, goofball net that we had back in the late 90s. That's still so super incredibly interesting because you're again on this track to become a computer programmer and while you're you're an enthusiast what I think I I respect and I personally admire and hopefully whoever's listening to this admires that as well is that you never gave up on that dream regardless of the fact that you ended up in this other career path. And so what drove you to write six screenplays a year, even while you're programming, you know, and of course, you know, working on your, your personal life in general and building a family and all those things, what drove you to keep at it on the side nonetheless? Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, I'll give you two answers. The first answer is I'm not really sure. Um, I just did something I always had and I, describe it and i and i describe other weird hobbies i have that are sort of connected like i was doing improvisational comedy at the time i was doing i, I started to do theater wow. in my 20s just to scratch that same itch i was like but I, and that was stuff i tried but then i realized oh that was fun but it's not quite what i wanted to do but it was satisfying so that wasn't as good as the other people that were doing it um i i was a juggler for my high school street <laughs> performer, I, like Penn and Teller were my idols. Wow. Uh, I always wanted to be like Penn and Teller, um, but I was juggling and stuff. Penn started as a juggler. Um, and I still do that, by the way. I just came from a juggling session this wow. morning. I still I still do that for fun, uh, but now it's more exercise. Um, so I had a, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a need for attention. I don't know. I don't know what the, what to say it was. It's interesting. I think there, I think there is, I always say anybody that's creative, there is something, there is some need for like um, uh, that kind of validation mm -hmm. or to show somebody you can do something that they didn't think and surprise them. And there, there's a little bit of an ego stroke that everybody needs to a certain level. Um, I consider myself pretty humble, but part of that humility is knowing that that must be somewhere at the center of it. Right. Um, Interesting. So that's, that's answer one. Um, answer to like what kept me going <clears throat> for whatever reason, writing and filmmaking and stuff were things I got positive feedback early on. And, uh, I think you, you absolutely have to get that positive feedback early on or you'll give up. I mean, you know, eventually you'll give up. I mean, you can't go on with it for 10, 15, 20 years. If somebody doesn't come back to you and, and you win a contest or they say, wow, you're really good, or this is amazing, or or you sell it. Now, in my opinion, all of it could be, you could ignore all of it, but when somebody gives you cold, hard cash for something you did that you created out of thin air, that's the ultimate like validation 
Um, even though it might not feel as good as somebody telling you you're amazing or something. And sometimes they'll even be dismissive and say, well, we'll take a shot on this. Um, <laughs> but, but if you can re if you can repeat uh, writing something, conjuring something from your head, and actually somebody will pay you money. And in the early days, it wasn't even much money. I was, I was amazed when somebody paid me. I remember I got hired to write treatments for like $500. And I was just like, this wow. is amazing. Somebody's <laughs> paying me to do this thing I do for fun. You know, it was just, that was kind of the amazing part. That's so, yeah. So amazing. early validation, I would say is the, that was okay. the driver along the way. I don't know what the driver behind the driver was, but that honestly, that came from somewhere early in my childhood that I can't quite figure out. Well, that's it's really interesting because I, I keep saying to people, whoever will give me five minutes to listen, that entrepreneurs and creatives are extremely similar in the same sense, that they have this burning desire to get whatever idea it is in their head to build something, to make something. And it's that curiosity and that push to make something that that is really similar. And then most of the time, you know, don't have a lot of cash and need to figure out a way to pull something off. That's kind of the the similarity. So uh, it's interesting to me that you did that. And then on top of that, I think that honestly, to me, you, you've taken the right path. Like you said, you advise your students often that you're, you're going to struggle early on, but if you're doing it as a side hustle, then maybe, you know, you can side hustle being the, the, term of mm -hmm. parlance sure. of our times, right? Um, yep. You yep. can you can do it in a way that I'm not dependent on selling this script to put food mm -hmm. on my table, for example, or to pay for mm -hmm. my rent. Mm -hmm. And yeah, maybe the nine to five or the whatever time you're, you're, you know, digging graves or doing whatever it is you're doing, programming or lawyering or whatever it is, isn't the best thing, but you come home and you put in those extra hours to build towards this dream. And eventually, I guess, to some extent, someone will just finally say, fine, I'll just, I'll take your script just to, just to get you to stop sending me scripts. Right. Or yeah, something along yeah, those exactly. lines. Exactly. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And, and the entrepreneurial spirit spirit is something in me as well. Like when right. I was deep in computer science, I was constantly looking around saying, one day I'm going to be my own. I'm just going to take this company that I'm at here and I'm going to do it myself because right. I can do this. Right. You know, and I was, and I did eventually. I know I didn't do it in a big entrepreneurial way, but I became an independent contractor and then I just started to freelance it. Um, and freelancing is actually what turned my writing career around because I started to work from home. I, I know a lot of people are doing that now, but I started to do that in like 1999. Wow. I, was, I got my first freelance gig. And I kept that going for about 10 years, uh, freelancing. Wow. And at that point, I was about 50-50 writing, 50-50 programming because I could I kind of freelance and run, I, you know, again, I was a decent programmer and the people that were hiring me, maybe they didn't have a decent programmer. So I was kind of able to move through that work quickly mm -hmm. and then spend the rest of my day writing. And I was also, I was also able to make my own schedule so I could write in the morning if I wanted to. I could write in the afternoon. I could stay up all night. I could do. So I was constantly working all day, but it didn't feel like it because I was making my own schedule and I was at home. I remember back at that time, I used to watch tons of television while I worked. And that was my trick in my head. I was like, it'll never feel like work if I'm like binge. And this was before net, that kind of, it was old net Netflix, the right. old discs in the mail. <laughs> I was like, it'll never feel like work if I'm binge watching television all day. So, you know, I'd be wow. watching the Sopranos or ER or whatever it was. And I would just watch it 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I went through series after series after series while it was programmed. I was just sitting there programming and it never felt like work because they wouldn't let you get away with that at a, at a real office job. So amazing. And so a couple of interesting things here. Now in that interim somewhere, right, you end up taking a class with Blake Snyder and Blake, by the way, for those who are listening that don't know about the save the cat series, save the cat is a series of books. Originally the very first book, save the cat was written by a gentleman named Blake, Blake Snyder, who's unfortunately no longer with us. But uh, Blake wrote that book, and that created this brand about a process for creating stories in a structured way. Blake's w- book was primarily for filmmaking, but then other books have come along, like Save the Cat Writes a Novel, or in your case, Save the Cat Writes for TV, which is awesome, awesome book. You've done an excellent job taking what Blake put together. And in, and in the book, you talk about how you were kind of one of his guinea pigs in a way. So so tell us about that, how you met Blake. And this was way before Save the Cat was even a thing, how you met him and, and at what point in your side hustling journey was this? Had you already sold a script or not yet? Yeah. Um, I can't remember if I sold, I don't think I had sold a script. I might have optioned one for $10,000, which wow. I thought was crazy. Yeah. You know, I thought that right. was the most insane thing. And that nothing came of that one. That's in some ways I, I don't count that one as my first one. Really? I had other ones that were like, like I said, $500 rate of treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, even though that was really my first one. But anyway, uh, oh, but the, my first one that I really made money with, I know I sold it around the time I knew him, but I'm not sure if I met him first. I just chicken and egg kind of thing. Sure. Um, but he, um, so again, it was the early internet. That's how I met him. Uh, so he was in LA. He was a, a successful screenwriter. He had things that I couldn't even approach at that point. Um, he was kind of in the back end of his career in some ways too. I, I think he... His heyday was in the 90s. This was the early 2000s. He was still scratching at it, but um, his real money had been made. And I think his real uh, screenwriting, especially, you kind of blow up and you're hot for a really short period of time. And then usually you kind of fizzle out and they bring in the new the new batch, so to speak. Um, and he, he, you know, sold million dollar scripts, sold one to Spielberg, had a Disney movie, all this stuff. So um, on the back end of his career, I think he was seeking out, and this is something that happened to me later in my in my career as well. I think he was seeking out kind of giving back, kind of uh, relationships that you don't have, you know. Um, there's another part of me, and again, you might be better uh, figuring all this out. There's another part of me in my psyche that I need for, like, a mentor to, to help people, um, to tell what I know, to tell my story. Um, that's a big part of of me, and it was him as well at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And um, he he joined this. We we had created me this me and this group of scattered internet writers had created a website. Okay, and keep in mind this is a big deal back in two thousand. Sure, of course, yeah, yeah. So we created a website, and I think it was it was called the Screenplayers. It doesn't exist anymore, so don't go look for it screenplayers.net and it was a shared way to market our stuff we like pulled our stuff together we would do interviews it was a way to generate some industry interest and then we put our scripts on there like like here are the scripts i've written you know contact me if you want to read it um and it was a way we pulled our resources and went on there i actually sold a script off of that 
website. So it paid off uh, at, at some point, um, it, a couple years later. But anyway, somehow we interviewed Blake for that website, and he was such a friendly guy. I didn't interview him. Another member did. He was such a friendly guy and so much seeking like people like us to, to talk to that I can't remember if he has to join our website, which is kind of wacky because yeah, wow. we were a bunch of nobodies. Amazing. Um, and he became, he joined our website. He was one of the pages, you know, Jamie Nash was here and somebody else. And then Blake Snyder was on there. Um, so I got to know him and he was writing a script. And um, at the time I was writing comedy and he thought he needed some someone else. He needed another voice for the script because he was, I don't know, I think he thought, crazily enough, I think he thought I would bring like a young comedic voice. Again, I was doing improv at the time, writing comedy scripts. Comedy was a thing. And I think he thought I could bring the laughs that maybe he couldn't bring to that. Maybe he was the older generation and I could bring it. Um, so he pulled me into one of his scripts and he started to use save the cat terminology, but there was no save the cat then. So right. I just thought it was standard industry lingo. You know, he started to say all these, there's terms in Save the Cat, like the fun games section, which is act two, where all the trailer moments happen. There's the all is lost moment, which happens toward the end of your story, where the worst thing that happened to your hero happens. He was using these terms. He's like, okay, well now the debate, we, okay, we're in fun and games. And, the, and he had me do an outline based on these terms. And I, again, I just thought he was kind of, he was kind of this weird guy who had these quirky terms or maybe they were industry lingo. Um, I had no idea what he was really doing. He was secretly plotting out a book in the back of his mind. I'm not even sure if he was formally plotting out a book at that time, but I think he was informally plotting out a book. I think he was a deep thinker in those things. So I always say I was the first person, as far as I knew, to ever use Save the Cat because the things he did with me in that script that I wrote with him were straight from the book, even to the point where he used, you know, I have some right here. I still use them to this day. He pulled out the note cards and he said, okay. I said, what's the next step after we had the outline? And he said, we'll do a 10, 20, 10. And I was like, oh, I said, what's a 10, 20, 10. <laughs> and he said, oh, a 10, 20, 10 is when you have, you break into note cards. You have 10 cards for the first act, 20 cards for the second act, 10 cards for the, for the third act. And, Again, I just was like, oh, I guess that's something writers' rooms know or everybody in the industry knows. He just made it up. He like, miyagi you. He, he miyagi you. Yeah, he miyagi you. You're, you're waxing sure. on and waxing off. You don't even know, right? Absolutely. You're becoming so a screenwriting killing machine and you don't even know it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and I did. After that, I did a 10 That's how I started to do my own work. I adapt almost all of his things in my own process. So even a couple of years before that book hit, I was using process. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. Um, I think we started to work together. A lot of this is a little fuzzy, of course, but 2004 right. to maybe 2006 ish. And I think the book came out in 2007. So that kind of gives you a feel. Wow. Um, and, and the book wasn't an immediate bestseller or anything. It was just another screenwriting book. Um, it started to take off right before he, he, like you mentioned, he had a sudden heart attack, I think in 2009. Oh, and the book had started to take off then. And if you know anything about the publishing industry, even then, a book taking off isn't going to make you rich. Nowhere near as much as his spec screenplays, you know, probably made him rich. Um, but he was 
he was having the time of his life meeting people, um, doing seminars, workshops. I think he went to China. That's what he was chasing. He was chasing that personal connection. He had a story to tell. It was his way to relate to people. He wanted to help other people. And that's what was really taking off right around the time he he passed away suddenly. So, that's, and then yeah. his book, his book became a bestseller and it's still a bestseller to this day to the point where every morning I check my book and see how it's doing in the Amazon <laughs> rank. And it never beats his book. I mean, his book is always at the top. He's been on the top ever since. It's incredible. And it is, it's become one of those books that now you read other books on storytelling, on screenwriting or whatever, movie making, pre-production, production, and Save the Cats constantly, constant. It's like a Robert McKee book, like that to that level. Yeah. I, maybe well, even more so now. That's the other one that's number two up there. <laughs> Save the Cats and Robert McKee. Robert and then, McKee. And then I'm, I'm somewhere after that. I'm usually three or four. Right. Uh, Every now and then I beat McGee, but I never beat Save the Cat. That's funny. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's awesome. So did he ever share with you, and obviously this, is, this isn't about Blake, but but it had a lot of influence on you and your career, obviously, and what you've done. Did he ever share with you how he figured out that formula? No. No. He did not. No. Uh, okay. No, That's no, interesting. I, honestly, I, I've, I've read enough or heard enough about him that I know it's just years of experience that he kind of came up with that formula but on, honestly here's the thing about his formula i and i think it's because i'm a computer science guy but i was into the formulas right. i i like to dig in i like the question like how do i make this repeatable like if right. i did something exactly. really cool if i created a joke i'd be like well, what's the formula to create a joke i was that guy um so i had read all the books i had read robert mcgee mm -hmm. i had read sid field um hero's journey was yep. the other one right and honestly, the thing Blake did, he didn't do anything completely new. They were all refinements on things that had been done before. And those things went back to cavemen times. You know, those things that he had, they weren't necessarily, it, it's funny because he gets, every now and then, there's there's camps in writing. Writing definitely has opinionated camps. So you'll get people that are like, save the cat, never use that formula, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, that guy made up this formula and it's not there, but really he just refined things from, you know, he made them a little more accessible. Um, he made his books really thin in a way. It's, it's not, it's a quick read. I mean, you can even skip around it and really read it fast. Yeah. The, the other dirty secret with his book, not really mine as much. Uh, this is the one buying point. You almost don't have to buy his book. You could almost just read on the internet what it's about and figure it out. Yeah. Um, my, mine's a little more complicated because TV gets weird. So you buy my book is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, his, his you almost like when I teach it in class, a lot of my students are cheap and they don't want to buy it. And I'm like, you don't have to buy it. I, I even tell them, you don't have to buy it. I, you'll learn. I can teach you everything in a class. You don't really, there's enough stuff on the internet. You don't really have to buy the original OG Save the Cat book. Um, the television one, you absolutely have to buy. Um, <laughs> But it's it's a it's a testament to how how simple it is, how brief it is, but how effective it is that you almost don't have to buy it. Why I say almost is there's a lot of other stuff that gets discounted that to me was always equally valuable as the main. So the main thrust of his book, if you don't know what it is, is it's a there's a beat sheet. It's it's a 15 beats and it's a layout for an outline basically of a feature film. It, it's been, you can use it for a novel. 
You can use it for a television show. That's the main, main meat of the sandwich. But there's other things that are sort of revolutionary if you don't know anything about Save the Cat or, or storytelling. Things like how to construct a good log line, what a good log line is, when you should construct that. There are little tidbits like the title, Save the Cat. Like, what does it mean? And Save the Cat, actually, what it means is usually there was a scene in the beginning of a movie where you made the hero likable by quote unquote saving a cat. I mean, that's, that's the simple, that's the handle, but um, there's examples of that. There's that 10, 20, 10 thing and nuances of that. There's, there's all kinds of things in his book that is a good reason to, to buy his book. There's and the other big thing that he, there, he has this thing called the genres, which are patterns of storytelling. Um, but, but anyway, that I, I never, your, your question was, where did he get this from? Um, those things that I just described were experience. That's experience. That's his experience. The beat sheet itself, that's around caveman days. And many people have taken the crack at it. And he took his crack. And I just think his crack was more, his version of it has just been more resonant than some of the other versions because it's a little less technical. It's a little, let's pull our sleeves up. We can all do this. Come on, this is easy. Anybody can do it. Um, if you read Robert McGee, it looks like you know a PhD and yeah, you know right. dramaturgy. It's much harder, something. much it's, harder to digest. It's, yeah, it's harder to read. I, I hear Robert McGee is great if you hear his pitch, if you see him in the theater and he does this performance and stuff like that. I hear it's a lot better to see that and then read it. But the thing about Blake's is it's it's very accessible. So. Well, it's kind to of my your, way around your, your no, but that was I think that was a good answer because the interesting thing is you you wrapped up that that story and that that part of the answer with, you know, Blake had a way of putting things in in a really succinct and concise and sort of every person kind of lingo and at the same time making it resonant. And when you were talking yes. about how you know he has a lot of similarities to Sid Field to you know uh, um, uh, Joseph Campbell, etc. You know, in my mind, the first thing that I thought of was give me the same thing, only different, which is from his book. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it's just yes, those things. Yes. He puts it into these really simple phrases. And as you said, the the beat sheet is the brilliance of it. And and you're right. I've I've uh, I teach entertainment law at Temple one of the semesters, IP law the other semester uh, to business students. So talk about already a sort of weird thing. And then I teach it from the media producer's perspective is the idea, right? Learn to produce, learn the business, but you need to know the creative to know the business. And to know the creative, you have to learn how to storytell. And, you know, I, I actually have them write a treatment, a small portion of a script, a very small portion, and then uh, a log line and just a couple of these exercises. And then I have them do coverage on each other um, on these like little bits and pieces. Um, but one of the th one of the days of that class is I teach the beat sheet, and you're right. Mm -hmm. I can just give him the beat sheet, and then I say, I encourage you to go out and buy Blake's book, and now your book, Jamie. I will I will mm -hmm. tell them that the uh, rights for TV book is more in depth, and it is because as you mm -hmm. as you point out in your book, uh, TV shows are story engines. I mean, you need right. to have arcs across seasons. You need to have arcs across series. 
you need to have, and then you have to have within each episode, a story complete in and of itself. Right. But you, you, Mm -hmm. where did you get that? Where did you take Blake's formula and you were the, the Padawan to his Jedi, so, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Right. And then Mm -hmm. now you've evolved to the master and you've taken that formula and created a formula of the formula that you can repeat in these, like almost like, uh, both, season arcs and then also show arcs and and i think you've done a brilliant job of carrying that forward how did you come up with that yeah yeah uh and and with me it's definitely experience 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 but also because i have that mindset how do i make this repeatable what works what doesn't work and i've always been a weird you know with save the cat i use save the cat on all my on all my projects but i'm also a I'm also constantly challenging it or questioning it, like with movies I see and analysis. And um, I don't believe Save the Cat is the best tool. Not that there's any good tool for analysis. I don't think that's its purpose. I don't think its purpose is, let's go watch Pulp Fiction and break it down to a Save the Cat. I think that's that's useful in some ways because it's useful to have examples. I actually think you're better off finding examples that work and not worrying so much about the one, the breakers and things like that. Right. Because I think Save the Cat is something to pull a story out of you, not to analyze whether a story is good or not as much. Um, so though I think it can be useful in rewrites of your own personal work when you're the one in control to see if things are working. Um, I, don't, I don't know where, but anyway, I don't know where I was going with that. But um, <laughs> the, the point the point being... Um, I, I'm constantly qu- was questioning Save the Cat and things like that, but I still use it. And um, television is something I've started to write more and more. So there's there's two sides of my experience with television. A lot of my students were coming to my Save the Cat class and raising their hand and saying, hey, I'm not really as interested in, the, in film. I'd like to write a TV pilot in this class. And I would, and they were like, can I do it? I'd think about it and I'd be like, sure. I, you know, I'm on your side. I want you to write what you want to write. I said, sure. But I started to realize in that class where, which more and more students were coming to me and saying, I want to write a TV pilot. I started to realize it didn't work like the pure way I was teaching it. There were a lot of caveats. There were a lot of like, maybe this is, you know, maybe this will work, maybe it won't. And it's, it's one of those things that it can work because again, pulling a story out of you, um, you can pull a save the cat, pure save the cat story out of yourself if you want to. Um, but there are other things in television that make very effective television pilots. And pilots is where most of my focus was. Um, that I thought it needed some small adjustments, caveats, and variability, some flexibility. And I started to experiment that first with my own work. And then... I started to experiment it with my students. And then it was kind of random that the Save the Cat people asked me to write the TV book. Um, they didn't know I was doing this. I don't think, well, they probably knew a little bit about what I was doing with this Save the Cat stuff. But I, I think when they asked me to write the book, they were like, oh, yeah, it'll probably be pretty easy. You just throw the Save the Cat formula thing up there, you break some <laughs> pilots down. Um, and I don't know that they expected what I gave them exactly. I don't know that they expected me to, to dive in and not to say they were at all dismissive of it or, or didn't like it. They, they loved it. 
Um, I just think they probably thought I was going to have an easier time than I have. Um, so in combination with the things I just told you, the other thing, the first thing I did when I started to write the book was I watched a ton of pilots and tried to analyze them in a save the cat manner. And I started to find patterns. I started to find patterns that didn't exist in a regular save the cat beat sheet. So most of the save the cat stuff was there, but there were certain things that I saw over and over and over again in television pilots that I was like, okay, this is not a coincidence. This, this is a thing. And some of them I was very resistant to. Some of them I was like, I don't think Save the Cat works in this. Um, some of them I wanted to punt. I was like, I'm not, I can't use this pilot as an example because it, it's a model breaker. But instead, I kept them around and I watched more and more and more pilots. And I started to wrap my head around what they were doing and how they could be expressed using the Save the Cat vocabulary. It's very applicable to anyone who's listening because what you what you're basically describing is you you have this broad span of data, right? And you take a look at the data and you just start to look for patterns and coincidences. And then you're kind of experimenting with them and saying, well, this doesn't fit for this reason and these other things don't fit, but how do I restructure it so that it fits the model that we're trying to create? And then making a model from that. So maybe in many ways either Blake rubbed off on you or you picked up on something and you've Blaked Blake's system, uh, mm -hmm. which is, which is really awesome. Really, really cool. So how, how have you maintained for yourself idea generation? What's, what's your process? How do you come up with six, six screenplays a year is not yeah. easy to do. Yeah. Not at all. Just the, it's... the sheer fact of coming up with good ideas that have enough in them. You actually, you give a great example, which, which makes me laugh out loud every time I listen, I listen to the audiobook of your book. And, um, so every time you mention your student and, uh, you say, you know, uh, it's a movie about a student who has these ambitions to be happy or whatever it is. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. you go into that, how that's not a story, right? That's just maybe a couple of scenes can be explained in a few minutes. So how are you generating that much content? Where, where are you finding it? How do you turn it into a story? Yeah, and I'll, so one of the first Blake Snyder things I did in my career early on, um, and I had like three friends and I was obsessive with online friends again. Um, I was obsessive about this, um, how to come up with ideas. And I did very much like I described the book process where I kind of went and looked at examples and I said, how would I do this? Like, I have all these really cool movie ideas. And then my question was, what are the processes that I'm going through in my brain to come up with these ideas? Hmm. And, and I was actually really good at ideas was my other thing. I was a really good, there, there's a thing called high concept ideas. Um, this is probably why Blake and I got along because he came from that high concept thing. Um, and high concept is really concept as the star you know you're putting something out there like dinosaurs who uh a, you know a theme park of cloned dinosaurs or something and that's like you know you don't need liam neeson is a cloned dinosaur right. you just need uh, whatever i don't know why i picked on liam neeson i was watching <laughs> ice road <laughs> on Netflix. <laughs> um <clears throat> but uh he'd make a great dinosaur um 
So uh, I I was I was good at that, but I was like, how am I coming up with them in my head? How was I, how was I doing that? So I so I dove into it, and I came up I came up with a bunch of games like improv games uh, that I I generated. And by the way, I've seen these elsewhere. I mean, I created them myself, but now I've seen other people did the, created the same things. Um, so these aren't just mine. It's funny. I teach this on the first day of class. Um, this is what my students, it's like, hi, I'm professor Nash. Uh, here we go. Here's what we're going to do. And it's, it's this. So the first thing I do is teach them log lines because I want them to be able to express their ideas in log line form. But then I go through a couple things. And the, the first thing I did, uh, and I'll give you this quick description because it fits the computer science narrative. I made a, I built a program to do this <clears throat> and all it did, it was a simple thing where I combined two stories into a this meets this equation. Mm -hmm. And then I would come up with the story for it. So, you know, you can get ridiculous ones. Like it's, you know, it's Star Wars meets Chariots of Fire or something. You know, it could be some wacky thing. It's, it's Elf meets, um, it's Elf meets Empire of the Sun or something. I don't know. You can, you can get some really horrible ones. Um, but I created a computer program where I put in a bunch of titles and sometimes I put in even public domain things. I put books in mm -hmm. and then it would just say this meets this. And I would sit around and figure out what that was. Wow. Um, and the way to play that game is so, and here's how I teach it to my students. I tell them, and, and, and my, my rationale for this is simple. Like most great ideas are not new ideas. They're a combination of two ideas that are out there or more. The right? same thing, so only Reese, different. Yeah. Same thing, but different. Reese's peanut butter cups. You know, it's chocolate was there. The peanut butter was there. Put them together. You know, um, pumpkin spice lattes. Um, yeah, right. Uh, you know, uh, social media for that matter. It's, it's social, it's media. Put them together. Um, all kinds of things. So all the great ideas are a combination of two things. So if you take two things and a this meets this formula... And the, and the way I teach it to my students, I have them write in an Excel spreadsheet across the top of an Excel spreadsheet, 10 favorite movies or something mm -hmm. like that. And down the side, the 10 most recent movies or 10 first things TV shows you can think of. And then in the intersections of each of those cells, I have them write their ideas. So if you do 10 across the top and 10 down the side, that's a hundred ideas you're wow. forced to think of, Wow. you know? And, um, I don't make them do a hundred, but I make them do like 25 or something like that. But, um, I used to do a hundred. I forced myself to do a hundred. Wow. Um, and the key thing to it is some of them are horrible. That's fine. It's really improv rules where heart you're, I, I always say, come up with the worst idea you can think of because people won't come up with the worst. They'll come up. I want them to free up their inner critic and the way your mind works with this. This is the other thing I teach my students. If you list out like all the elements, um, I think the one example I always use is like, what about Bob or something is, is you know, Bill Murray movie. Great one. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's like a, a psychiatrist. He's treating a patient on um, the patient won't go away. If you list out all the elements, location, um, the arena that you're in, the, the uh, time period, the, um, the heroes, all that stuff and list them out. And then you list out the other movie and you just start switching pieces of them, you know? So 
Maybe you take the location from the one. Maybe you take the heroes from the other. It's just flipping little bits. Um, and the, the one you can most see this with is Rocky. Because if you, if you look at Rocky as the ultimate underdog story, and you start flipping some bits in Rocky, you can get Drumline out of it. You're you right. can get right. um, Purple Rain. Right. You can get um, Dodgeball. You can get, you know, and, and this is a way to come up with story. You just start flipping little bits. Interesting. So th that was my first improv game. And that was one I used a lot. Because um, one of the things you're asked to do often in screenwriting, when I got my first manager, they made me submit 10 to 20 log lines a week to them. And they would just go, no, 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 eh, this one's not bad. Maybe if you change it, no, no, no. You know, and it was wow. it was brutal. Just on log I'd lines. Submit, just on log lines. I'd submit 20 a week and they'd say no to all of them. Eh, nothing, you know. Um, wow. And that was great training because later on when I actually was making money, I'd, I'd get like studios would have similar things. They'd be like, we're looking for a Christmas movie or something. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, okay, Christmas movie. And I just start coming up with lots of ideas. And, um, and uh, it was the same thing. None of these, no thanks. Yeah. And then they'd always say like, if you want to do more, you can, but I don't feel like you have, I was like, yes, I want to do one. Cause I was trying to win a job. Um, right. And right. so the next week I'd come up with 20 more. Um, and a lot of times I'd come up with 20, but, only submit like seven you know i'd submit the seven best um but it's it's it that actually won me work later on so it was something that started early in my career these improv games these idea games and i have more of them but i'll, I'll leave it at that um but the um later on in life in my career like we'd get a television show there'd be a show like an anthology horror show and they'd be like hey we're looking for um we're looking for episodes for next season. You got any ideas? Oh yeah, I got lots of ideas. I didn't have any, you know? And then I'd sit down and I'd just, in two days, I'd wow. come up with 10, 20 ideas. No, it didn't scare me because I'd been doing it all my life. Whereas some people might get scared of that. They might be like, I can't, I, it took me a year to come up with one idea. I can't right. come up with, <laughs> with 20. Um, so then I kind of became known as the guy that if you needed a bunch of ideas, that guy always had some ideas. So if you needed a Amazing. bunch, they'd come to me and they'd call me up. They'd be like, I know you have ideas for this. And I'd say, of course I do. I wouldn't. But then I'd go off and by the next morning, they'd have a big list of ideas. Um, so that that's, that is in a nutshell. I, I brute forced it is what I used it's to brilliant. say. Because, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's exactly, I, I, again, what- I don't what, think you can wait. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> what saying. entrepreneurs do though, right? You have You have a problem that needs solving. And you just start throwing every idea you can think of at it until something sticks. And we say, okay, we've got some viability here, right? We've got some feasibility. Yeah. Let's go with this. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yes. It's amazing. Your process is incredible. And, and I'm very appreciative that, that you shared that with us. Thank you. Now, one yes, last sir. piece to this is, uh, again, entrepreneurs and, and um, screenwriters, filmmakers, people in creative industries, it's to me, the end game is re uh, rejection management, right? Because you're getting rejected on a constant, wow. constant, constant basis, right? So yes. what, what for you, how do you deal with that? And how do you overcome that? Like you said, walking into a room with seven log lines, however many they are, they're kind of your babies that you think are, are winners. And then just to have somebody, you know, with a, with, with a ballpoint pen, just go, nope, 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 nope. Okay. Then maybe this guy and nope, nope, nope. Maybe that one. Nope, nope, nope. 
how do you deal with that? How do you keep yourself motivated? And how do you keep overcoming the internal voice that we all have? That's, you know, your, your imposter syndrome, for lack of a better term. Yeah. How do you yeah, overcome yeah, yeah. that? It's so funny that you asked me this today, because um, on the ride back from juggling, mm -hmm. I don't know, there was like an email I hadn't checked. Um, I hadn't checked from yesterday because I knew it was going to be a rejection. So I was just saving right. it. Yeah. I was like, yeah. Um, and it was one of those emails and it wasn't even a big rejection, minor rejection. I was just like, yeah, well, I'll put that off to tomorrow. I'm right. not going to read that one. Um, and um, I was thinking that, you know, in the beginning, rejections, any rejection felt huge. Um, and I've, I've written a blog about this, actually, because I there were certain weeks where I, I counted up that I got, I wish I could remember. I want to say it was like a hundred rejections one week that I got. Through experience, you learn that a hundred rejections is fine. And I almost got to the point where I tried to change my mindset to chase rejection. I was like, that, and <laughs> this is going to sound weird. And I, I don't know why juggling keeps coming up today. <laughs> but um, it was, I, I was, it, it's, it's funny because when I was a kid, it was one of the things. I learned to juggle when I was when I was a kid. Uh, I guess it was about ninth grade or maybe eighth grade. Um, and what I learned was, you know, it was one of those first things for me um, that if you put your mind to something, yeah, I was an uncoordinated kid. I couldn't, I you know, I was terrible at sports and stuff. If you put your mind to something, you could do you could do it. Um, you just had to allow yourself to suck at it for a little while and and kind of take the pain of it for a little while. Um, so in juggling, I would go out there. So I learned to juggle five balls one summer. Five balls was wow. like, that separates the men from the boys and <laughs> juggling back then. It's it's not like that anymore because the internet has turned juggling. We should have a juggling podcast. Um, the internet has turned juggling upside down where now people do five. Yeah, because they have YouTube and stuff. Right. But back of when course. I was a kid, if you were five, you were a weirdo. You were like, oh, you really put some time in. And the only way you could do it is by chasing those drops. You had to go out there and say, I'm going to drop 2,000 times today. Wow. That's you couldn't say, I'm going to succeed, because you didn't know if you were going to succeed. But I could I could say, I'm going to drop 2,000 times. So I took that mindset into writing. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to get 50 rejections this week. And I didn't care about the successes, because I couldn't control those. But I could control getting rejected. I could control the the submissions, um, and so that was my mindset, and um, that's what kind of turned me around. Like like that, I had to pay my 50, 50 rejection dues, um, and and I had to get rejected on something I really tried at. Like I, w I wouldn't allow myself to just. It's easy to get fifty rejections on something awful, right? But I really had to put the effort into getting rejected. I really had to do my best work to get rejected. That was part of it. Um, I I had to put my best pitch forward. So I just kind of changed my mindset that I was secretly chasing rejection, knowing that uh, there was a certain price of rejections that would ultimately turn into a success. Um, now, what I was going to say though is something later in life. I, I feel like. I feel like I still take those, like the fact that I have to hide or not open an email, um, something circled back around with that in my mindset uh, that I've realized in the last few years where where sometimes, I don't, I don't know if I'm worn down at this point or something, but some of them are just like, ah, another rejection. Right. And it course. can kind of spoil my day a little bit. Yeah. Um, those rejections spoil my day. Um, 
I'm still getting just as many rejections. So, um, but so so now I do sometimes sometimes I do manage um, how many hits I take on a given day, uh, just because or when I take those hits, because I know they can kind of send me a little um, sideways at times, um, not in a big way, but in a small enough way that maybe for an hour or two I'm thinking about that rejection. And when you're getting 50 or 60 of them, that can be. Yeah, it can be tough. Um, Brutal. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I can, I mean, it's funny too, because the one I was talking about today, it was the smallest, like it's a nothing, but it was just like, I got it on a late Friday night and I was like, eh, I'm not going to read that till tomorrow. So sometimes I, sometimes I try to put them together. I have all kinds of tricks in my head too, that when I have a success, I chase rejection hard. Because I'm right. I'm going to be on the buzz of the success, yeah, right? right? So I'm like, that'll smooth it over because I can get, and it's it's honestly true. So let's say I make a big, like somebody hires me to do a rewrite and I'm floating. I'm like, oh, I got money coming in. This is great. Then I'll be like, okay, now's the time. I'm going to follow up with all those people reading my stuff that I know are going to say no. And <laughs> you, that, I, I do that all the time. It's this weird awesome. psychological trick that if I have good news, I chase all the bad news and try to get it all done at once. So I get like 50 rejections that week, but I'll be like, I don't care. I got money coming in. I'm on a big rewrite. Well, you know? it's the so. interesting thing there, I think, is that in general, that's life, right? Life is cyclical. There, there are ups and there are downs. And when you're up, it seems like everything is going right. And when you're down, it seems you're like you're just getting punched in the gut every every turn you take. And mm -hmm. it's really interesting. And then the funny thing is, to bring this all full circle, is that's exactly what the Save the Cat Beat Sheet does, right? You have this, you either start on an up and then obviously you got to bring it down. You have to have these fluctuations to make it realistic and to make it real for people and and to to give them the twists and turns along the way that get them to, to suck into these stories. Yeah, uh, yeah most really stories are, are, are somebody with a little bit of... Uh, there's a little bit of happiness at the end. The whole rest of the thing is tension <laughs> and horrible things and twists and turns and things. A good story. That is a good story. Yeah. There's a little bit of, there's a little slice of happiness on page 100. But yep. The other 99 pages, they're pretty much misery or, You're just getting or maybe beat. you'll get a little, maybe you'll get a little taste of victory, but it'll immediately get quashed. Right. Yeah, right. For sure. Right. So. No, super cool. Jamie, thank you so much. This is really cool. If people want to follow you, if they want, obviously we'll post a link to your book in our show notes, go out, buy the book. It's awesome. It really is a fun read or a fun listen. You do a great job on the audio book as well, by the way. Thanks. Um, if people want to follow you or if they want to, cause you do podcasts as well and stuff, right? If they want to follow the stuff that you're creating, what's the best place to reach you or follow you? Yeah. The easiest one-stop shop is my Twitter account. If you're on Twitter. So it's Jamie underscore Nash, because I put everything on my Twitter. Um, that's where I have my most followers and stuff. So I, I update that. I do have a Facebook page if you want to follow me on Facebook. And if you hate all the social medias, you can always go to jamienash.net. I'm, I'm out there too. And I, whatever podcasts or anything I'm on or doing, it'll all be up on all those things. Cool. Jamie, thanks so much. Thank you. This was fun. <laughs>